This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm Jonathan. Today, immediately following the debacle that was Edwin and Morcar's rebellion, we transition from 1068 to 1069, the year that will, as I stated on the podcast before, test William, and I might add the English as well, like never before. Here's the situation. Matilda finds herself shuttling back and forth between Normandy and England. Folks in the county of Maine, on the mainland, had had just about enough of their absent duke ignoring them. William, on the other hand, is crisscrossing his island kingdom like never before. And the English, well, these English, they just don't let up. And if you can believe it, this is merely the calm before the storm. Today's episode, episode 84, is entitled, A Deadly Game of Tug of War. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. In the wake of Edwin and Morcar's little uprising, there was a clear rattle through the rebellious thoughts among the English. But it didn't last long. Not long at all. And though the vast majority of the nobility from the Thanes higher was all about overthrowing this Norman pony boy and his continental thugs, but the vast majority of the people were just trying to move on. Now don't misunderstand me, they were pretty irate as well. Their women were being violated, their sons and husbands are being conscripted, if not killed outright, but conscripted to fight against their own neighbors. Their fields were constantly being either stripped or torched, and their properties were being stolen with absolutely no legal recourse. So yeah, everyone in England was pretty mad, but there were certainly people who felt it was time to just, you know, accept it already and and move on. The continuation of rebellion would bring only one outcome. How much more could the English handle? It's been a truly devastating two and a half years by the Christmas holidays of 1068. And it all weighed pretty heavily on one man in particular. By January of 1069, as we've mentioned, the North was still in somewhat of an uproar. And most of that, of course, was directed at William insofar as his choices for Northumbrian Earl. And, as we said before, this new Robert Cuman fella, that Welsh tyrant who rode across Yorkshire as if he owned the place, well, I mean, who cares if actually he actually did own the place? It doesn't matter, by decree of the king himself, mind you. But he wasn't a northerner, and that's what mattered most. By lashing out at William's choice, they were able to lash out at William himself. But there was one other authority they weren't at all happy with either. In fact, it was the very man who shouldered much of the northern suffering. Archbishop Eldred of York wasn't exactly the most popular throughout Yorkshire. See, Eldred initially stood by Edgar Etheling back in 1066 upon the death of King Harold II. But he quickly turned around and endorsed William as legitimate king of England, you know, within weeks, by the time by the time William was outside of London. He's even said to have been the archbishop who crowned William 
as King William I of England back in December of 1066. And here he was, Archbishoping York, in Northumbria. Who does this turncoat think he is, anyway? Well, he was one of the few Englishmen who could see the writing on the wall and was fighting tirelessly for a smoother, more peaceful, if that's a word we could use here, transition into Norman rule than how it was going so far. For instance, earlier in 1068, as William and a very pregnant Matilda approached the north, William had already scared off a little contingent of northern rebels once. Remember this? And the threat of them was high enough to cause William to have his queen stay 14 miles south in Selby, where, as we've mentioned already, she gave birth to the future king, Henry. With Archbishop Eldred's help, William was able to enter York virtually unopposed. But, as I hope I've shown so far, the kingdom was changing pretty rapidly over the last year alone. So was this Archbishop Eldred of York a friend of the English? Or was he a foe? It's actually a pretty great question. Let's take one example of what Eldred was working tirelessly to smooth over. It's a topic that struck at the heart of much of the English ire at the time, mind you. And it was also something that was 100% instrumental in establishing Norman control across the kingdom. I'm talking about castle building. All of these castles being built around England had several different, different impacts, and many of them were double-edged, so to speak. Sure, William filled these castles with loyalists and mercenaries, making the local security much higher and much, much stronger. But the actual building of these castles, the construction itself, had a serious consequences, as Peter Rex calls it in his book English Resistance, quote-unquote, a punitive effect. He writes, quote, Not only did a castle dominate the countryside around, providing a secure base for squadrons of knights, it also took up space within the town from which it took its name. This meant that every town lost many houses, pulled down to make space for the castle. End quote. Now, this was the case for just about everywhere around England that William had traveled, castles popping up any, anywhere you went. However, Rex zooms in on York itself here. See, immediately after the massacre, massacre of Robert Cuman at Durham in the earliest weeks of 1069, it became, as he said, quote, eminently possible in these men's eyes that a Scandinavian kingdom might be reestablished in the north or that a realm might be created for the Ethling Edgar, end quote supported by the Danes and Malcolm, and crowned by, that's right, the Archbishop of York, one Eldred. Now, speaking of Eldred again, see, though he had a pretty bad rap as a supporter of this usurper king, William, he was another remarkable figure in the 11th century. So I just want to take a moment just to kind of flesh his life out a little bit so we get a, a rounder idea of who this guy is. Again, we're asking, was he a friend or was he a foe here? He'd been raised during the days of Canute, eventually crowning both Kings Harold II and William, uh, remarkably within the same year. In addition, Archbishop Eldred was also the first English bishop to make the long, arduous overland journey to Jerusalem, 
even gifting the Church of the Holy Sepulchre with a golden chalice. Now, on this trip, he doubled up the opportunity to travel through Hungary, this being in 1058, remember. And it was Eldred, who was a, an instrumental part, a key part of the group, looking for Edward the Exile and his family, per the orders of King Edward. Remember that? Yeah, it was actually Archbishop Eldred who William can blame for Edgar Etheling remaining a thorn in his side a few years into the conquest. But most importantly, Archbishop Eldred, despite his bad reputation among the Northerners, and really the English as a whole, had become a sturdy bulwark against Norman overreach, at least within his circle of influence. One story shows Eldred actually cursing the Sheriff of Worcester, the Norman Urs Dabateau, who was clearly stealing some of the Worcester Cathedral's land. William of Malmesbury record, uh, records him waxing poetic with his curses like a boss, a medieval slim shady, if you will, incorporating the sheriff's own name, saying, quote, Thou art called Urs, may you have God's curse. End quote. I know, the old boy wasn't playing around, was he? Now, seriously, though, that's Eldred. Like so many during this time, English and Norman alike, his reputation wasn't as clear-cut a description as we like to hear. It's easy, it's comfortable to chalk someone up as things like pro-Norman or pro-English, and that's it. But that's not the way life is. You know it, I know it. People aren't one side or the other. Not a thousand years ago, not today. Archbishop Eldred of York, like everybody, he was a complex man. And when the events of Durham occurred, that is, this massacre of Earl Robert Cuman and his little band of merry raiders and the bishop of Durham's private residence, when Durham happened in early 1069, Eldred knew that William would come down swiftly and come down harshly on his people across Northumbria. How much more could the archbishop do to keep back the tsunami he'd seen wash over the rest of the kingdom time and time again? And rumor had it that William was pretty pissy already after the uprisings in the West Country, in Exeter, and from two of his own earls. Rex writes of the northern situation after Durham, quote, The whole affair now escalated into a full-scale rebellion. Those who had taken Durham now moved toward York, where they were joined by the Etheling. Earl Merrillswine and Earl Cospatrick, and all their men, well, they also renewed their appeal to Swain of Denmark for assistance. End quote. And William of Jumiege wrote a curious passage about how these northern noblemen responsible for Durham, upon sending them money to purchase weapons and soldiers with which to take and fortify York, quote, chose as their king a certain boy, nobly descended from the stock of King Edward, end quote. Well, who else could that be but Edgar Etheling? Meaning that young Edgar, the son of Edward the Exile, and grandson, don't forget, of the now legendary King Edmund Ironside, had made the trip from Scotland to lead his newest uprising in the north against the rule of William of Normandy. This newest uprising includes the earls listed earlier, that is, uh, Merrill Swine and Cospatrick, as well as the leading members of the House of Bamborough, kinsmen of Thorbrand the Hold, who had once led the Danes in Yorkshire long ago, also the man who ambushed and murdered the legendary Uhtred of Bamborough. 
Now let's stop and think about this for a moment. These ancient houses, many of them with deep historical ties to one famous figure or another, were for centuries now in an almost roiling pot of blood feuds and assassinations. Generations upon generations of bad blood had been cast aside in this moment. This was the threat that the Northumbrians saw in William the Conqueror. Rex writes, quote, These men were all connected to one another, either by blood or by marriage, and if not by that, by feud. That Cospatrick, son of Maldred and Arnkel, son of Ecfrith, could appear in the same cause as the four sons of Carly Thorbrandson reveals the depth of Northumbrian anger. End quote. I urge you all not to overlook or discount this alliance as, you know, just another alliance of Northerners. The fact that I even wrote that sentence is something. The families of Northumbria, they didn't exactly get along. William. William caused, and just let this sink in, William caused Northumbria to unite. And William would prove Eldred right many times over, unfortunately. But first, the king has to hightail it to Yorkshire to deal with this latest English uprising. He knew that York was in good hands, those of his, his appointee Richard Fitzrichard, such an unfortunate name, but he still sought to ride northward as quickly as possible. And in a move oddly reminiscent of King Harold II's ride northward just three years earlier, William puts the pedal to the metal and pushes a rather large army of his own at breakneck speeds for the day. These forced marches north into Yorkshire were brutal, no doubt about that. But William was sure to send a message along the way. He ordered the burning of fields, the raiding of towns and villages for resources, and most importantly, the building of a handful of castles as he traveled northward. As he neared York, he fought in small skirmishes, resulting in the deaths of quite a few English rebels, though the vast majority of his Northumbrian coalition scattered further north. With the help of Archbishop Eldred, once again, William entered York, nearly unopposed, where he met up with Richard Fitzrichard, and ordered yet another castle built nearby on Bailey Hill. This would be York's second castle. We also need to take note of the presence of a sheriff in Yorkshire named William Mallet. Now, it's probably pronounced Malay, but I'm going with the English pronunciation. William Mallet. But just put a pin in that name for a few minutes. It's important to note that in the late winter and early spring of 1069, William Mallet was there. So with the rebels once again pushed back into the forests and hills of Northumbria, it seems that William had once and for all re-established, really, his rule in Yorkshire as of, say, April of 1069. Now, he took the opportunity, though, to invite his wife back over from Northumbria. But it wasn't solely because he missed her. No, things are never that simple. And he invited her to join him in York, Strategically, for those playing the political long game here, Matilda's presence was essential to William's legitimacy and his supremacy there. I hope I've made the point already, but it bears repeating as often as possible. Matilda was a linchpin to William's entire success story. In fact, his surname, the Conqueror, 
is partly because of her. Let's not forget that. Without her, he had already proven an unequaled warrior and a duke not to be contended with. I mean, the king of France didn't even like contending with him. However, Matilda made him a continental presence, a figure we still speak about on podcasts today. Her importance in coming back to England in the spring of 1069 cannot be understated. In fact, every time she reached England, it cannot be understated. Now, along with her second son, Richard, Matilda reached port and went on a short little tour before meeting up with her husband uh, in Winchester, just days before the Easter ceremonies. Now, this was no coincidence. As Tracy Borman writes in her book, Queen of the Conqueror, quote, Yet perhaps she and her husband recognized the importance of having a figurehead for the royal family in the south of their new dominion. Whilst William struggled in the north, a strong presence was required to guard against any sympathetic uprisings elsewhere. Matilda, already gaining favor among the English people slowly, thanks to her dignified bearing and gentle demeanor, formed a welcome contrast to her husband's brutality. End quote. She had created a series of events to ease the English into Norman rule, again as a stark contrast to William's military approach. Matilda's presence might have been the one sign to the English that there was a softer, dare I say, more reasonable side to this Norman invasion. Matilda, I dare say, may have represented the very last thing to have emerged from this this Pandora's box that William opened down in Hastings. Matilda may have represented hope. Surely God would su- wouldn't subject them to such treatment without the hope of redemption. Surely God wouldn't condemn his, his true believers to such a fate indefinitely. The English deserved better than this, right? They deserved, at the very least, a counterbalance in the power structure. Was Matilda that counterbalance for them? Well, many at the time probably thought so. So there in Winchester, at Easter, William and Matilda, Richard by their side, held a crown-wearing ceremony. Now, crown-wearing ceremonies were a special occasion. Despite what you may think about kings and queens from what we see on the big and small screens, See, back in the 11th century, kings and queens didn't just wear their crowns all day, every day. They were big, they were clunky, they were heavy, they were metal. (laughs) It was a special occasion, and the religious holidays were the big ones. And on the heels of his dominant showing in York recently, the kingdom needed to be reminded that he wore the crown, not Edgar Etheling. William of Normandy was their king, and Matilda was their queen. Throughout the summer, England fell into somewhat of a lull. The Silvatici, or wild men of Edric's in the West Country, were uncomfortably silent, and the North, even when Matilda visited with William, though still shouting from the rooftops about their love and admiration, I say sarcastically, for their new king, weren't, well, Well, they weren't nearly as violent as they were just months earlier. But something happened that forced a shift in William's actions. In August of 1069, Matilda abruptly left England in a hurry. 
The records indicate stirrings in southern Normandy about the county of Maine, making more than just whispers of a revolt of their own. Though he was doing a fine job running the duchy in his parents' place while they were away in England, with the stirrings of rebellion in Maine looming, Robert Curthose, still quite young, wasn't expected to handle such a situation by himself. It's understandable. As Matilda sailed across the channel, back to Normandy to relieve her son of such a large burden of stress, William stayed behind with his son, Richard. Something was at play here. But so far as I can tell, the chroniclers only leave us hints to try to piece it all together. Judging by events that will soon take place, either William's hunch or William's intel were absolutely on point. Just when William is able to enjoy just a couple months of business as usual in England, his entire world is about to be upended again. And I can't wait to tell you about it.